everyone. Welcome back to the Queer Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Luis Cornejo, a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California and certified sex therapist specializing in queer and BIPOC mental health. And today we're going to be talking about disability, queerness, and systemic discrimination. And so I'm going to let my guests go ahead and introduce themselves and share a little bit about their work. Thanks. So I am Wednesday Reem Efrock. I am a board certified registered art therapist and licensed professional counselor in the state of Connecticut. And my work focuses mainly around disability justice, body image and eating disorders in the queer community. And I just love helping people become more in touch with their creative side and their bodies. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here Wednesday. I actually started following you on Instagram and I remember seeing your post and I was like, okay, yeah, I think we're kind of like birds of a feather. So (laughs) I'm so glad that we were able to make this work and that you're here. And I know this is a big topic. I mean, there's a lot that we could talk about. So, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to fit everything in. But I I, I think for me, it's just really more important to hear stories and to really have conversations with folks uh, who have not just firsthand experience, but also who support others. Right. In in really uh, overcoming or working through some of these challenges. So, uh, you know, we are going to be talking, like I said, about disability, queerness and systemic discrimination, uh, which is a mouthful. And also, as I was reading that, I just kept thinking around how I mean, these things are so intertwined. Right. Especially right now, given the uh, current political climate and so much that is going on, um, you know, with even uh, just healthcare, uh, supporting folks, right, in, in um, you know, taking care of themselves and even the rhetoric, right, shared around gender, around sexuality, around identity. Uh, so you tell me a little bit about, you know, just your work in general. You mentioned uh, using a lot of creative uh, aspects, but also supporting folks within these specific uh, challenges. Sure. Um, so a lot of my work around this topic really evolved because of my own personal experience. I would say like the things that I work with, with people are things that have personally affected me either personally or around me. And so, you know, there's a very, my relationship to disability specifically is a really long story. I always tell people I was a late life child with a mom that had polio. Um, Mm. And so I kind of grew up seeing someone that was disabled, but very much, and I love my mother. This is no shade to her. Um, But, you know, she grew up being told she didn't have a disability. So there was no having a disability. And Mm. so as I got older in my career and started to have these chronic health issues and started to develop my own disability, I really had to work through my own internalized ableism and really had Mm. to look at how many times I think I missed the mark with clients that deserved more Mm. because I couldn't understand their experience because I was unwilling to understand my own. And so when I finally like delve into that work of like what it means to be disabled, it opened up the ability for clients to be able to kind of bring that to the table and really talk about it, experience it. And not just the like, we're going to function in spite of this thing, but also Mm -hmm. grieve the things you can't do and be angry at the system. I mean, we know right now the system directly is targeting, you know, queer folks, especially trans and gender diverse people. But what always happens underneath all of these levels is that like disability justice is never touched, especially with Mm -hmm. queer people. Mm -hmm. We never talk about this as a community. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, 
I think that we live in a world that kind of keeps disabilities in general under wraps. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of queer spaces are very inaccessible. And so if it's inaccessible and we don't see it, then how do you know it exists? Like when you think about like queer clubs and I think about queer clubs I used to go to, there's no way with a cane or a wheelchair I could have ever gone in, let alone had Mm -hmm. a good time. Or think about pride, right? There are some pride (laughs) parades and events that people make accessible, but on the sidewalk in Manhattan is not an easy place to be when you're with a cane and you can't stand all day. Absolutely. You know, and thank you for pointing that out. Uh, As you were saying that, I just even started thinking about myself and how I... Obviously, you know, having privilege and, and not thinking about it, uh, it, it doesn't mean it's not there, right? It doesn't exist. And I know for a lot of folks, that's a big part of it is is really just not having firsthand experience or really acknowledging, right, or recognizing our own privilege. So, our, you know, being able, able to to do some of these things um, without the need of other, uh, you know, tools. And so I think this is a really important conversation because you're right. I don't think we talk about it. I At, at least I haven't been in spaces where we had conversations about this. Um, and yet it's so crucial, right? Because our community is very diverse and there are lots of folks who also want to enjoy and participate and be involved in these things. Uh, and also thank you for sharing your story. I, I think it's so important for us as not just you know therapists and healers and, and folks working with others to be open and transparent about our own stories, but it also shows how we've grown, right? You shared a little bit of your own experience uh, with with disabilities and, and and what you were taught and also how that has evolved right which i think is the the biggest part of this work is that even as clinicians mm-hmm. we're not perfect right we don't know everything yeah. we're not always going to be you know not hold uh, things in our mind that we should uh, you know we all have biases right everyone and so it's it's, it's important to remind ourselves that uh, we're also learning and we're growing and uh, you know you mentioned thinking about clients in the past and I, I i also do that sometimes where i think wow like i remember when i wasn't as connected to my queerness in the past and I might have said or expressed things based on my own wounds and now here I am really realizing uh, who I am and I had to do my own healing work right whether it was through therapy or whether it was really sitting with myself and so uh, I just want to say thank you for naming that and you know for everyone listening out there therapists are humans too Uh, you know we also evolve and grow and shift and change and I think that's part of our strength right and really being able to help others uh, and and, uh, creating space to have these types of conversations Um, so you were sharing about specifically within the queer community, uh, how we don't have these types of conversations and even how there is no accessibility within some of these spaces. Um, and, and, and I think that this also leads to a lot of, of um, you know, uh, tough, I, I would say tough um, realizations, right, around how we are also still struggling, even within the queer community, to be inclusive, right, and to yep. be uh, open uh, to to folks who uh, also need support in different ways. Oh, a thousand percent. And I think about, you know, other pieces of this that other, you know, disability justice advocates that are queer have brought up that I'm learning from now. Like one of them had brought up in a post the other day, we talk about marriage equality, but when you're disabled in, in this country, right? Okay, cool. Queer people can get married now, but if you're disabled and you get married, you lose your disability benefits and your partner has to support you which means you have the legal right to be married as a queer person, but you can never access it. Mm. And I read that and my heart like bled. Like I had never felt such grief 
for another human being that I didn't know before, because here I am lucky enough to be married, to have a marriage license, to have a marriage that is valid. And here Mm -hmm. we have people in our own community that even after being a part of the marriage equality fight, still can't get married as queer people and might even avoid having relationships and experiencing love and sex and pleasure and all of the things that are a part of being a human (laughs) because of these weird, very twisted laws specifically around disability that really mirror what we as the queer community have gone through, what you know, the BIPOC community has gone through, there's always been someone kind of fighting for that marriage equality. And I think those with disabilities were kind of the next group to fight for. And I'm lucky enough that my disability doesn't stop me from working. And Mm. there are people that can't work in our community that need us. And we're kind of silent. Like I read it and I was like, oh, I have some shame about my silence. I've got to figure out how I want to talk about this. And (laughs) this was the perfect platform for us to start having that conversation. Absolutely. You know, and and you just mentioning that makes me think so much around even my own uh, upbringing and how disabilities were presented. Uh, you know, there was always a lot of shame or even uh, a lot of guilt around talking about it. Uh, or even uh, when, when we had people in my community that did have disabilities, how they were either treated or responded to. Um, and, you know, these are things that I think uh, a lot of times we we hold on to. Um, and even, even the way that we live right our lives and how we interact with one another and so i think it is important to to be able to not just listen to conversations but have your own dialogue and also question your biases and think about the privileges and benefits that you do have that others don't um you know as you were sharing that story uh, i i've seen similar posts and it definitely does break my heart to know that when we talk about equality we're, we're not talking about <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone. It's, it's usually we're talking about folks who, you know, have certain privileges. And, and that is very unfortunate, um, you know, that many folks do not have that freedom to make these decisions like so many of us without having to consider a lot of things, right? Their benefits, their ability to to have the quality of life that they need. Um, and you, you mentioned mm-hmm. also sharing from your own personal story. And I, I do know uh, firsthand as someone that, that follows your work that you share a lot about your personal experience with disability and also, uh, you know, dis- systemic discrimination. And, I, you know, I, I, I've learned so much from just reading a lot of your posts and also your own experiences. Oh. And uh, yeah, and I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that and how you show up on social media, how you uh, show transparency oh. and, and what's that been like for you? Yeah. I mean, so I made this decision two years ago when I went back to working in eating disorder treatment which was a financial decision, you know, like I was leaving working at a group private practice and was going back into a field that I loved working in, but knew that treatment centers weren't the place for me, but had an opportunity to build something for the queer community. And so when I did that, I kind of felt like my, for lack of better words, like my mea culpa for sacrificing part of my beliefs to survive Mm. was to be, as vulnerable and authentic as possible publicly to show people that like we as human beings are so multifaceted that we can do one thing that doesn't fully align with our values and live all of our other values and all of our other truths and evolve. And so that kind of has turned into, I guess what my social media presence is. And as of late, I've been doing a lot of 
like making painting videos. So mm-hmm. as an art therapist, we do this, um, we do this process that my mentor created. It's called El Duende process painting. And so you use one canvas and you go over and over and over until there's something about you as an artist that goes, this is finished. I have let go mm-hmm. of whatever it was that mm-hmm. I was releasing and making those videos and having moments where I have to be in a wheelchair. I have to sit in a chair. I have to stand. My canvas can't be on my easel. I can't access the things I need to access. Mm-hmm. It's been a really beautiful way to share what that looks like and means for me with other people. And it's been really healing. And a lot of the feedback I get from people is, you know, one, they find it really soothing and peaceful to just watch someone make art. And it reminds me how important it is that we make art just for the sake of making art, not for Mm -hmm. the product of what we would create or whether or not we'll sell it, but just that we had a creative process in a world that doesn't want us to create. And a lot of people have talked about like how cool it is to watch someone that's like evolving in their disability being like, "Mm, Nope, there's one thing I'm not losing. Mm -hmm. I'm not losing painting. I refuse to lose painting. And I have days where like um, with my chronic illness, with the medicine I take, like sometimes my hands go a little numb. I can't hold the paintbrush the same. Um, You know, sometimes I have to sit instead of stand all these different things. But um, I started out as an art therapist working in a facility for adults with disabilities. And so I learned a lot about how to adapt art making for different kinds Mm -hmm. of disabilities. And so I've really just taken that knowledge from 10 years ago and translate it into what I need to do for myself and really hope that people see that and know that like, I don't know if I didn't know how to do that. I would really hope another artist or art therapist would show up for me and go, you know, if you just put a bunch of duct tape and a sponge around the end of a end of a paintbrush, mm-hmm. you can hold it with a bigger grasp. It won't hurt your hand as much, right? Like something that simple that someone shows you that yeah. then you don't have to give up. Um, and that feels really important to me, this idea that we don't have to give up our joy as mm-hmm. our bodies evolve. Absolutely. You know, thank you for, for saying that, because the other part that you, you mentioned earlier and I was thinking about was also when we talk about things like sex and pleasure and joy and how oftentimes folks with disabilities, right, are excluded or or there's not a lot of, of uh, support, right, when discussing some of these things. Uh, when I was doing my sex therapy certification, we did cover some of it and we actually had folks come in and talk about different options or products or positions or books and things like that that were helpful for folks who uh, were either disabled or struggled with with pain. Uh, and I thought that was wonderful. Uh, you know, before that, I hadn't even thought about it. And, and I think that that speaks volumes, you know, even for myself, as someone that's doing this work and working with the queer community, I remember that was my first introduction to really having an open conversation around pleasure and sex for disabled folks, because we don't think about that. I mean, I didn't think, you know, it's almost like we assume yeah. disabled folks don't have sex <laughs> or right? want to enjoy pleasure. <laughs> it's like, no, of course they do. They're human beings, you know, like you were just like you were saying we're human we're multifaceted we definitely have uh, this you know similar needs and so that was something that was very eye-opening for me even just having conversations around comfort and safety and uh you know pleasure for disabled folks and, and so you know I, I was hoping uh maybe we could talk a little bit about that i mean when when you think about uh pleasure and joy uh and, and you know uh, and disability how do those intersect and and what are your thoughts around these different things oh 
I love this. So my partner does a lot of sex therapy in the in the queer community, um, especially with older trans folks where like bodies change, right? Mm-hmm. Bodies change as we transition and then bodies change as we get older. So I've actually learned a lot from his work, which is really interesting. Um, but I think kind of like what you said was so true. Like, do any of us ever sit back and go, huh, how do disabled people have sex? No, Mm -hmm. they're completely like erased from anything Mm -hmm. sexual, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, I can't think of any movie, TV show, book, porn. I can't think of anything where there's been a disabled Mm -hmm. person present where that's Mm -hmm. been so easy to access. And I think Mm -hmm. part of the problem is if we are not represented in all of the multifaceted ways we exist as a human, that part of us gets erased, right? And so that's what we see happening. And so for me personally, in my work with clients around the topic, a lot of it is, can we find safe people that can teach us different adaptations to, like you're saying, Mm -hmm. like a position or a toy or a tool that helps us do the Mm -hmm. things that we want to do? Also, do we have partners we can trust? If someone is disabled where they're in a wheelchair, right? And you cannot walk and therefore run out of a Mm -hmm. situation. It is really different than say me who uses a cane, but I could get up and get out of a situation if I really needed to. And so it's also about safety planning, learning Mm -hmm. how to choose safe people to give access to our bodies with Mm -hmm. and what that means when you know that you can't leave. Yeah. And I think that's something we also don't talk about with disabilities is when, you know, and I've, and I've experienced it. I've been in a wheelchair in an airport where someone has like cut me in line in the bathroom to use the handicap stall. And they can do that because I'm in the wheelchair and I can only move so fast. Mm -hmm. I don't have an electric wheelchair. I use a manual one. And so, you know, I can't roll super fast because this is new for me. And so I, I remember in that moment thinking, gosh, what would this have been like if this had been a sexual experience and someone had just not respected the consent of my body and the access to my body? And what would I have, what would I have done? Mm -hmm. And if we don't talk about about sex and pleasure... Right. And if we don't talk about sex and pleasure, then we can't also talk about safety. And then it means disabled people, you know, all of us. Right. And I tell everyone, you know, there's a gamut of disability, but it means all of us are also not taught how to have safe sex in all the ways that it can be safe. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Exactly. You know, we and this is the interesting thing that sex in our society is so prominent, right? It's shown in everything from advertisements to movies to music, and yet we don't actually talk about it. It's just almost like this version of it that's presented to us, uh, but not really considering uh, how sex is not one size fits all and, and pleasure and all. I mean, sometimes pleasure isn't even talked about, right? We talk about sex like in the biological yep. form, right? But not really pleasure or joy. Uh, it's more functional, right? And especially in a lot of uh, religious circles or spaces that I've been in uh, when I was growing up, it was discussed as more of this is for procreation. It's not about pleasure, right? You're not supposed to enjoy sex. And so not having these conversations avoids so much. And especially for, for folks who are marginalized, right? Including folks with disabilities 
disabilities who may not, you know, have uh, a lot of representation. And so as you were talking about uh, not seeing this in a lot of spaces, you know, it's funny because they actually did show, and this was the first time I saw it, was on the new Queer Ass Folk remake that they did. Uh, They actually did show uh, folks with disabilities engaging in sex, which I thought was so awesome. Yeah, because it was centered on pleasure. And there was a lot within even those conversations. Unfortunately, the show got canceled. You know, anytime that there's folks of color or even like more uh, folks in marginalized communities, I think there's a really weird kind of thing that that goes on. And it's often not as supported or there's not a lot of trust from these studios to really you know, invest in, in giving them enough time to to grow. But anyway, uh, you know, the original Queer as Folk, I think, was was British. And then the second American version was very yeah. white centric. And so this one was all uh, centered around queer folks of color and with disabilities. And so I thought it was actually a pretty cool show uh, where they did show uh, folks with disabilities engaging in sex. Yeah. And some of these things that you were mentioning did come up. Safety, uh, getting to know body their own bodies, pain, sharing with others, the vulnerability that comes into, uh, you, you know, it, engaging, right, and stuff that other folks uh, may not have to consider. And yet they're very real to many, many other folks. So Oh, agreed. And because our world is also so like, for like lack of more eloquent words, like we are such a whitewashed Christianized nation, mm-hmm. right? That sex is a whitewashed religious experience mm-hmm. and not like you're saying like the entire like spectrum of like what, what sex can be. And if we're keeping sex in just the, a cis man and a cis woman have sex to have kids, it means that we're also not seeing the adaption equipments, mm-hmm. right? There's so many adaption things out there that are considered part of the kink community, but can easily be used for any disabled person to have sex in a way Mm -hmm. that's comfortable for their body or to use for their own self-pleasure or a partner pleasuring them. There's so many options. And I think because we're so puritanical and sterilized when it comes to sex and also so oversexed Mm -hmm. in a really odd way, right? Like we don't have Mm -hmm. any kind of balance in any way yet that... Mm -hmm people miss out on the ability to also learn yeah absolutely they they you know because there's no no uh real safety around having these conversations right oftentimes they're me- they're met with shame guilt or it's tmi right instead of actually really engaging yeah. in an open dialogue about something that's so natural and that you know many of us enjoy uh and and have some connection to it even folks who are asexual right there is there is a a yeah. diversity there and so it's important to i think recognize all of these things and you know something that comes up for me a lot and that I've also encountered is that a lot of folks with disabilities oftentimes live at home or live with other people. And so they don't have privacy. You know, it's not like they can just invite someone over. It's not like they can just, you know, meet with their partners. It takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of considerations. And, uh, you know, I've heard from many folks who often share like they don't really have uh, the ability to go somewhere, the ability to do a lot of these things. Uh, And so they often feel very touch starved right or or even need intimacy yeah. and don't have access to it because of these things and living with other people you know sharing uh, a home or having someone always there or needing a, you know someone that understands uh their disability to help them uh prep and do all of these things and and that's not always something that is accessible oh my gosh a thousand percent as you were saying that i was like having someone around me all the time sounds so daunting Mm. Right. I can't imagine. Right. And I'm, I'm very fortunate. I have a partner when I can't do things. I have Mm -hmm. someone to do things for me. 
when I want to be alone, there is respect that alone means a lot of things and it's a given. But for a lot of the disabled people I know that aren't in partnership, they either live at home with their parents, mm-hmm. um, live in a facility, have mm-hmm. home health aides that are in and out of their home or family or friends. And like, I don't know, I feel like we're, because we're not taught to have these conversations, there's this awkward moment of like, can you leave so I can touch myself? Mm-hmm. Right. And that feels, that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel mm-hmm. good to have to ask for space to do what any adult should just be allowed to do. Yeah. Let alone planning with a partner, having someone over, having to what prep everybody in your home about this person's coming over and what's going to happen. That just feels mm-hmm. like such a mm-hmm. very intense, overwhelming experience and kind of like a little violating because I feel like we all get to decide how open or private we want to be about our own sex and pleasure and intimacy. And Mm -hmm. we've taken that away too, right? If you are disabled and you cannot care for yourself in all of the ways, you also lose that privacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. You know, um, I I was thinking right now as you were talking about that, other topics that came up in my sex therapy certification program. um, And one of those was even what you mentioned about porn, right? That we don't see... Uh, disabled bodies oftentimes engaging in that type of pleasure. And so in our brains, we often don't even consider it. You know, I think someone had even mentioned in class, like, I think the problem is that, uh, you know, folks have become so conditioned that we don't, we don't find disabled folks as sexy. And that is a big part of the issue as well, right? That we showcase and reinforce this idea of what sex is supposed to look like and who's supposed to be having sex that if people have specific body types and look certain ways then we want to watch them have sex but then other people it's like oh my god no like that's that's gross or i don't want to see that and it's like what the fuck right i mean we're talking about human beings who are very much entitled to pleasure and because we've all been conditioned and you know and and this is also a whole other topic right around our bodies and around the way that we engage in pleasure i mean especially when it comes to sex uh because of all of these different forms of of media that we consume right whether it's seeing actors and actresses engage in sex you know very specific looks that they have or ways that they have it that it we, yep. we don't Think about how, as humans, sex is not like that. I mean, all that stuff is very, uh, it's very produced and very polished. Mm-hmm. And so that that really stood out to me when that person said, you know, we've been taught that uh, uh, d- folks with disabilities are not sexy. And we had a whole discussion around that and how, um, you know, th- th- there there isn't a lot of of uh, representation and a lot of of normalizing right that folks have mm-hmm. uh, different bodies uh, and like you mentioned bodies change they shift they you know e- and even folks who are born with disabilities or who end up having a disability because of an accident right and having to go through that process i mean it's just yep. so much and it's not discussed and i thought that was such an important uh, dialogue that we had in in one of my courses because uh, it really brought up to the forefront like yeah. you know our own biases and for me I remember I'm someone that likes to be very transparent. I, I like to remind folks, you know, none of us are perfect. We're obviously learning. And, you know, the, the only thing we can do is make sure that we, uh, you know, when we're introduced to something that we really have an open heart, open mind and exploring and understanding how our own 
perspective has come to be. And so I know growing up for me, like when we thought of folks who were disabled, I mean, it was almost like thinking uh, they're, you know, they had a very sad life or there was something that, you know, there's something wrong with them or we had to feel sorry for them. And I remember sitting in that course thinking like, no, like I, I, this is, this is a part of that issue, right? Is really having this mentality that we see that we see folks with disabilities as less and it's not, it's part of diversity. Some folks, you know, are born with, with disabilities, others, you know, and these are disabilities based on obviously our rhetoric, uh, what is it, our, our um, measuring of what we're, so, you know, I ideally yep. we're supposed to be like because you know in the real world it, this is diversity right i mean folks are, are born in all types of ways so uh, i'm i wanted to ask you uh you know you you mentioned at the beginning about having to really work through your own ableism and uh you know and and the the experience you had with mom what was that process like for you yeah. i mean when did you kind of sit there and think like oh shit like i'm kind of holding on to these ideas and i know where they're coming from and i mean what was that process like for you Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm still in that process. <laughs> I feel like I might be in that process for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm always super honest about that because like we're each human and it changes. Um, so the first time that like I found out something was quote unquote, like wrong with my body physically in a way that was going to affect me is I was actually 25. I was pretty young. Um, I kind of had just started my recovery from my eating disorder and was an over-exerciser and found out I had developed basically arthritis in every joint mm. from the hips down and was having a lot of pain in my hips. I was trying to finish my undergrad degree and no, I wasn't 25. I was 23. I was really young. Mm. Um, was trying to kind of figure out how to function and be in the world and was actually living back at home with my parents. Um, I had moved in with them to finish school and remembered being in a lot of pain one day and the campus that I was going to was like a quick drive from my parents' house. And my mom offered to drive me, but she was also limping. And I remember thinking like, why is she taking me if she doesn't feel well? Where is the, where is the line and the boundary for both of us around that? And I remembered a story that my mom and my grandfather used to tell me growing up about how, um, you know, my mom had to have a lot of surgeries because of her polio. Mm -hmm. um, she had one leg that was much smaller than the other and had to wear a leg brace. And I guess a boy at school had made fun of her and she was encouraged to stand up for herself. And so she kicked him with the leg that had the brace. Mm -hmm. And that was like a success story. You know, she had used that leg to defend mm -hmm. herself. And there was no discussion about how bullying a disabled person was wrong and that there mm -hmm. was nothing wrong with my mother. This was something that she just had to deal with. You know, like a disability is part of your life as a person. It's a part of your body. It's not something that should have any morality around it. And so I grew up with this idea that, you know, if you were a quote unquote good disabled person, if you, you can mm. literally replace disabled with any other marginalized word and we know what's about to happen, mm -hmm. um, it meant that you suffered in silence. You functioned like everybody else to your detriment and you didn't talk about it. Mm. And as I've gotten older, I've really had to work through those three things, suffering in silence, yeah. right? Not talking about it and, you know, being in pain and just looking like things were normal. And mm -hmm. I eventually got diagnosed with fibromyalgia. You know, it affects my legs on top of having arthritis in my joints. And, you know, unfortunately they, 
they told me maybe last year, also in my feet, they were seeing like the bones of my heels were beginning to disintegrate, which mm. is why it hurts to stand sometimes because if, if your bone wears down, there's less to stand on, yeah. you know, and there's an intersection there with disability and fat phobia and not being believed because I'm in a fat body. Mm-hmm. Right. So that came into play where I finally have a doctor, a doctor who is trans, who believes me, who takes care of me, who is making sure I get the care I need. And it was really in that moment. And I really hope they listen to this podcast because it really was in that moment of being in an office with them and being believed that I learned it was okay that I was in pain. It was yeah. okay that I couldn't do things. And it was going to be okay if I needed a cane or a wheelchair, whatever I needed, because me being in the world was mm-hmm. more important than secluding myself from the world to look like the good disabled person. Yeah. And I needed that permission from my doctor. I needed that permission from my therapist. Like I needed the professionals in my life to give me the okay to do that because then I could go to my partners and my friends and say, you know, I am grieving this body that like used to go on long hikes and long swims and love to take 12 hour car rides into Canada for fun. Mm. Like my body can't do that anymore. And I'm really sad about it. And I don't want any of you to leave me because I'm not the same kind of fun anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's such a, a a very vulnerable space, you know, talking about how suffering and silence is, is really how people see a good, you know, uh, disabled person, right? Like not being uh, yep. a burden, right? Or, 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 or asking for this needed support, right? And that's something that does come up as well with yep. me and my work is folks often feeling a lot of shame or feeling like a burden uh, to others, right? To their family members, to their partners, and even to professionals, which, you know, I'm a big advocate for folks finding the support that they need and not having to settle for, you know, just anyone. And that includes medical professionals and therapists because not everyone is going to understand. And I think it's so beautiful and wonderful that you were able to find find someone who listened and this is the reality that many of us have to go through i've met i've gone through many doctors where i was not believed where i was shamed uh you know for my health Uh, i'm actually uh i uh my family well my family has a history of diabetes and when i was working at kaiser i struggled a lot with my mental health and uh overeating and one of the things that ended up happening was that i was so just overwhelmed and honestly struggling in that space uh, because I wasn't supported because the folks I was working with were not understanding that I even struggled taking care of myself to the point where I remember my doctor telling me like, you know, you're pre-diabetic, you need to take care of yourself, you're going to, you know, become full-fledged diabetic and then yada yada right and always this very like scary like conversation and it just always felt like I wasn't being heard especially when I was talking about my stress I remember trying to take time off or trying to find some other way to really take care of myself and being told that I couldn't until eventually I was told like well now you're diabetic and you know this is because blah 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 you could have prevented it and being shamed for a lot of the ways that I was just trying to really survive and and work through um you know the situation I was in and 
um, even after that, I remember uh, talking to folks that I worked with, uh, the, especially management around how I was feeling and how this was impacting me. And even in that scenario, I was often ignored, dismissed, or people just assumed that I didn't want to mm-hmm. work or, or that I was being lazy or this or that. And I wasn't believed. And, you know, that was a big part of why I ended up leaving and going into private practice and um, really shifting and making changes in my life on my own terms. And yet it was scary. It took so much. It was a risk. Uh, you know, I, I'm sharing this because I think it, it, it's so important to understand that just because folks are like medical professionals or because they have these, you know, whatever titles, they are not always going to have our best interests in mind. And we know when yep. that is happening because we're dismissed, we're ignored, we're, we're told all of these excuses, we're not believed. And so I think that's another really, really important and um, big conversation to have uh, uh, more of, right, when finding and seeking out providers that are understanding and believe us when we have a disability, when we have an illness, when we're experiencing something that um, maybe doesn't fit within the textbook, but it, it is, we're, we're experiencing it, right, mm-hmm. in our bodies, and we know our bodies. We know what we're feeling. And I've heard this from many, many folks often. I mean, this is really common uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of different uh, experiences, whether it's a disability or an illness or uh, even going through menopause or going through, uh, you know, very intense periods uh, yeah. where folks share, like, I am not believed. I'm told that I'm just I'm just imagining it or I'm exaggerating and I'm the one in my body feeling this pain, feeling this experience. And it yeah. does not help our mental health to be uh, care, cared by by folks who technically are not really caring for us, but really just trying to, you know, move yeah. us along. I mean, I always kind of, I think I share very publicly with people, you know, part of my eating disorder story is a lifetime of not being believed, mm-hmm. not being believed when my trauma happened, not being believed when dietitians, when I was in middle school, were giving me diet advice that mm-hmm. actually was prescribing me an eating disorder, mm-hmm. not being believed when certain foods made me feel really sick, parts of my body really hurt when, you know, I had like a myriad of like other health mm-hmm. issues not related to my disability that weren't believed until Finally, I I was having, um, I had a hysterectomy and Mm -hmm. my surgeon came out to my partner. Now, not to me, to Mm. my partner. Okay. So, so that's a whole nother story. And basically asked him if I had ever had surgery before, because half of my reproductive system had been destroyed from not being believed all the times I had cysts Mm. and tumors and things that never got removed and never got treated. And I was just lucky that in my own transition process, that's when someone would let me have that surgery. That's when someone would let me have treatment. Mm. And, you know, I tell every client that meets me and I tell every person that meets me and I hope it continues to be true. I will believe everybody until they prove to me they are not believable Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I know what it is like to have a lifetime of not being believed. And I know how good it felt when someone finally believed me mm-hmm. and could help me and give me words for what my experience was. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that that's a, a very powerful, uh, you know, a perspective and, and way of seeing things, right? It's believing folks and giving them the benefit of the doubt. Obviously, folks show us through actions or through their follow-ups, but at the same time, it, it you know, it, it also can be damaging when we don't believe 
people and their stories and the things that they've experienced and what they're going through. And for me, I, I've definitely taken the stance of multiple things can be true at the same time. Multiple things can exist yep. at the same time. And just because one person is ex you know, experiencing a certain way doesn't mean the other person is, is similar, right? Obviously, I think uh, we live in a society and a system. Well, I don't think I know we live in a society and a system that is very set on, you know, very rigid expectations and structures and, and social norms that they're so unrealistic and they do more damage to us because they yep. put us in the space of, you know, right and wrong, black and white, when there are so many layers to our experiences and to the way that things happen. Um, and so that I think for me, that's been helpful is really seeing this idea of that multiple things can be true and exist at the same time. And I think this is one of those, right, that uh, not believing folks and not giving them the opportunity to really find a safe space or a brave space to talk about these things is a detriment to their mental health, right? I mean, being told like what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, what you're going through is not real is not only shaming, but it also creates more mistrust, right? I know I have a hard time still going to the doctor now. I, I haven't gone in over a year and a half and I've been able to manage my own diabetes. I've been able to work through my lifestyle on my own in a very, very different way. You know, I know when I was younger, I definitely experienced a lot more uh, what I, I would consider like an eating disorder and, and struggling with that. And, you know, instead of really getting help from doctors, I had to get help from community, from myself, from other places to where I've learned to appreciate myself and see my body in a very different way. You know, I have to tell my partner, like to me, like right now, I'm loving and taking care of myself. And that, that does not include putting myself towards the torture, the pain, or the violence that I used mm -hmm. to take on my body and the expectations I had on it. And it's made a huge difference, not just physically, but also mentally, that I have been able to yep. really learn to love myself in all forms and understand that my body will change and shift and grow and become different uh, you know, through time. And that is okay, which was not something that I, I, I believed before, right? I had very rigid expectations of my body and how it was supposed to perform and look and be seen and valued. And I see this all the time. I mean, it's very much out there in the queer community. I mean, so many of us struggling with this, right? Body dysmorphia, eating disorders, uh, the way that we show yeah. up, the way that we express ourselves, uh, because we are all in this world. We do not escape all of this shit. It is, we are born into it and we have, we do the work through time, uh, but yeah. it, it, we just, we can't escape it. And so I often say that to a lot of, uh, you know, my clients and people that I work with and the other queer folks is, is look, we obviously did not have a choice. We we're born in a world where we are not embraced, where we are still, you know, everything that we come to believe and, and really create and 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 um and value for ourselves later on, oftentimes is, is out of working through a lot of these rigid and very internalized ideas about the world. And so, uh, you know, we don't have a choice. I mean, how many of us are, are, are you know, living in, in, a, in this world right now where we get constant messages, we're bombarded with them around how we're not good enough, around how, you know, this is right or wrong. I mean, religious beliefs, political, social, historical, I mean, so many things that we are really working through. And so I just think it's so important for us to also be kind and be gentle and be empathetic towards ourselves. Um, and, you know, yesterday when I did another episode, we were talking about the inner critic and how that inner critic is formed by all of these messages and how it perpetuates these ideas. And in a lot of ways, that inner critic is meant to keep us safe in 
the state of the world how it is and how we're supposed to behave, but it does a disservice to us because after survival, we don't know how to really um, live. I mean, we know how to survive, yeah. but we don't know how to live. And so I think for me that that's something that has definitely been a big part of my work and also my own personal uh, development is really learning and 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 uh, letting go and unlearning, dismantling a lot of these oppressive systems within myself, uh, because I don't obviously, you know, I don't think as individuals we have the power with the world. Obviously, that's going to be <laughs> at some time and a lot of patience for that to happen worldwide. But within ourselves, we do have that power. We do have that ability and that control to be able to make these shifts and changes and unlearn and really be gentle and kind to ourselves and reparent ourselves and all of these beautiful different philosophies, right? That that we can, you know, can name technical terms. But at the end of the day, it's really just about learning to love ourselves and learning to love others. And, you know, that's not something we're taught, at least not in, in a healthy way, right? We're taught to do it in many, many ways that are usually <laughs> not really, con you know, helpful or, or organic in creating these things. Agreed. I mean, what you're really talking about is the thing I talk about with my clients all the time, which is like actual body liberation mm. isn't just surviving. It's like the ability to live and be in your body and you don't have to like it or love it all the time, but you can let it be. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's... It's just important for each of us like to let it be and to know you're, you know, if you're disabled and there are parts of your life and your world that you miss or you're missing out on, you get to grieve that. Mm -hmm. And there should be no shame around grieving that mm -hmm. because real liberation is experiencing the entire spectrum of feelings when it comes to a body mm -hmm. without shame that you have those feelings. Yes, exactly. And, you know, for me, something that has worked has really been the dialogue I have with myself and how I've shifted it to not having mm -hmm. to create this like toxic positivity either. But but just like you were saying, being realistic. And there's moments where I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, I love my body. I feel so good in it. I'm happy that I've learned to appreciate it. Yada, yada. And there's some days where I do struggle and I just remind myself, you know what, Luis, today is probably just a, one of those days and it's OK. And how can you take care of yourself? How can you, you know, just be right and just exist? And and I mean, those days are hard because even when I try to use my, you know, hey, you know, the body's changed, like you, you're learning to love yourself. It can be really hard. And so I just learned to just sit with it and let and tell myself, look, right now, maybe I'm tired. Maybe that inner critic is a little bit louder at the table right now. Maybe there's just so much noise going on, and it's okay. It's okay today. You know, I'll take a nap. I'll drink water. I'll watch my shows. I'll grab my favorite snack. And then the next day I work through it, you know, and there's something that really uh, um, has been powerful for me. And, that, and that's been just taking every day as an opportunity instead of feeling like I need to have this whole shit figured out or have this big old perspective. And I, you know, discovered something. like, cause it doesn't work that way. You know, even when we talk about healing, it is ongoing. It is forever. There's no, I reached, you know, all of these points and check mark everything and life is peachy. No, like life is life. It is chaotic. There will be many things that happen. And so for me, it, it's really around just learning to take care of myself, even when I'm feeling like I don't love myself right now, but I want to take care of myself because that is a, that is a very natural instinctive part of me, of all of us. And that helps me 
it helps me get through those tough days. And then on the days where I do feel joy, I dress up, I show up, I move around, I do what I need to because it, it feels good. And then the other days, I just don't care for myself. So yeah, exactly. Everything you're sharing. And um, I think these are also conversations that oftentimes, um, you know, we, we, we don't have around how we share this information, right? Because a lot of things that even in the mental health field uh, that we're given or taught are very much rooted in the medical uh, model, which is pretty much about diagnosing people and telling them there's something wrong with them <laughs> or, or, you know, di- give, yeah. diagnosing them with something, right? And there's no deeper conversation than that, right? It's you're, you're, this is good, this is bad, you need to do this, you need to do that versus like, wow, like this is, this existence is, can, is really difficult sometimes. Um, and it's not mm-hmm. that simple. Agreed. I just think of, you know, again, I hope my doctor's listening because I love you and I'm so sorry. Um, you know, the last few times I've seen them, you know, rather than it being that traditional medical appointment, what's wrong? This is how we fix it. It's been a, yeah, the thing that's wrong is still wrong. And can you like watch me cry for 10 minutes? Because just being, having to talk about this is overwhelming or the stress of the world or my life happening around me that's causing this flare up is, is too overwhelming. And I want you to make it better as my doctor and you can't, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the thing Mm -hmm. is like when you have a disability, there are things that can't be just made better. And because of the medical model, we're told something's wrong with you. It'll be fixed. When you have a disability, Mm -hmm. there's, you're told there's something wrong with you there is no fix. We're fundamentally broken when there are things that someone can do to help your life at least be more comfortable, Mm -hmm. right? Or just show you some empathy and some understanding that you're in pain over this and you have things to work through. And so, you know, for me, it's been really healing to like have a medical professional that can sit there and allow me to cry. And there's no Mm -hmm. shame around the tears or the frustration Mm -hmm. or the grief and that they hold that with me. They don't rush me through it. And they're very honest in saying things like, I wish that I could like make it go away and I can't, and we're all going to work together to figure out how to make the things that need to be long-term functional, long-term functional. And they'll fire just about any specialist that they send me to that doesn't have that approach. Mm -hmm. So I also don't have to deal with a medical team that is always problematic and what a privilege because most people, especially disabled people do not have a doctor Mm -hmm. that just gives basic empathy yeah. as the cornerstone of how they do their work. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And that I mean, that's also a reality for uh, mental health professionals, right? That a lot of people yeah. often come to us because they want to find a solution, right? I mean, we're a very solution-oriented society where there's a problem, we fix it, uh, rather than understanding that some things, it just it doesn't work that way, right? It's not about fixing or, or, or uh, solving something, but it's really around an experience that some folks have to carry. And, uh, you know, many of us, I would say, at least in my experience with, with a lot of other therapists and networking I've done, we don't get trained or taught or really uh, engage in having these types types of experiences with folks who are disabled, right? And and how we also feel uh, knowing that we cannot fix some of these things, that we can be present, we can support, we can create spaces where, uh, you know, folks can come in and, and, and really uh, uh, talk about these things openly, um, but also that, you know, we're not there to fix. Uh, and how do we support our clients? How do we show them that we may not 
be in their bodies and understand, but that at the same time, we are conscious and aware and also meeting their needs in those moments, right? And, and what you were saying was so beautiful, um, you know, finding a, a provider that not only allows for the medical aspect of it, right? Of like, these are options, these are things that we do, or these, this is the specialist that you can see, but also the emotional parts of it. And many doctors, you're right, are not, are either not trained or don't really do a lot of work around the emotional aspects. And it's intense and insane to me in a lot of ways, because they're the ones that work with folks who are going to be experiencing a lot of mental health and emotional challenges, because they're dealing with real life situations that are affecting their everyday uh, physical pain. And they often don't really know how to how to address that or how to even um, uh, handle those kinds of spaces. When I was working at Kaiser, that was pretty much my role. Uh, anytime a doctor was struggling or had something difficult to share with a client or there was just a diagnosis, call the therapist. We need them in here because I'm just going to deliver the diagnosis and I'm out. Um, and I had to sit there right with a client while they cried, while they processed, while they sat with the pain of, of being told heavy news. Um, and I wasn't even equipped for that in some moments. You know, I was equipped for working with with clients in a process, but sitting there in a crisis and in a moment, I I, I mean, I learned quick, and it was definitely something I value to this day. But working in in, in the medical offices, it was a uh, it was very um, what's the word? Uh, it's just a very different experience, and so I I can definitely relate to what you're sharing because I saw it all the time, right? Where folks just felt like they weren't being listened to, understood, or even when something was, you know, information was given to them, uh, there wasn't a lot of time for them to really sit and let, allow them to go yeah. through this process, and especially folks with disabilities and in chronic pain. Um, you know, so I, I just want to say thank you so much. I, I know we could go on forever and, and I love the conversation we're having. And I, I definitely want to welcome you back or and invite you to another episode so we can continue talking about different topics. Uh, but I wanted to give you some time to also plug in like anything you're working on, anything you want to share, resources, anything that's inspired you, inspiring you now or inspired you in the past. Uh, and feel free to just share it. And I'm going to be sharing this with all our listeners in the description so you don't have to sit there writing it down, y'all. Uh, it will be there so you can access it. Uh, but yes, go ahead and say anything you want to share with us, any any the gems you want to give us. Oh, thanks. I mean, so my business is called Rainbow Recovery and we have our own website and we're not just therapists. We're both here to be artists and consultants and support. Um, so anyone can reach out to us anytime. And I'm a board member for a nonprofit called Project Heal, and we provide treatment equity access to eating disorder treatment facilities with a focus on giving any marginalized person, including and especially disabled people, the ability to get the care they need in an environment that'll be most accommodating for what they're dealing with. So if anyone needs care, wants to learn more, has an eating disorder, thinks they have an eating disorder, we're kind of the group to reach out to. Wonderful. And this wonderful. was so lovely. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. Are you on social media by any chance? Or can folks follow you anywhere? Anything like oh, that you want to share with people? Sure. Yeah, you all can follow me on social media. I'm Queer Art Therapist. Um, you'll get the spelling um, when you follow the podcast. And you can come watch me for my process painting videos and my angry outbursts about uh, the inequities of the world and some <laughs> updates on my return to academia as I become a doctor. 
Yes, yes, yes. Everyone, make sure to follow Wednesday. Uh, I know that you have a lot to offer. And for folks that need these resources, uh, definitely, I know you share that on there as well. So uh, make sure y'all that you follow Wednesday uh, and their work. And I just want to say thank you again, Wednesday, for being here. I really appreciate your wisdom and everything that you're sharing with us and your, your personal experience. And um, to everyone out there who is listening, we uh, will be releasing this episode soon. Uh, but there's also a lot of other fun amazing episodes uh, that are already out so make sure you check those out and until next time 